John Ziegler here. Excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly. And my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 112. Of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I'm your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a truly conservative perspective, because unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Last week, in honor of our 111th episode, we did an Ask John Anything episode of the program. I did a poor job of planning the timing of that episode, so we ran out of time well before I got through uh, even most of the questions that I received, and many of them are really very good and are worthy of an answer. So I promised last week that we would do a second episode of Ask John Anything uh, this week, and we will do that. However, as is increasingly the case in this ever-changing world, there is so much news to get to, I'm going to have to almost speed through it to leave enough time to get through uh, any of the uh, questions that we still have remaining from last week. I intend to do my best to do that, but as a disclaimer, uh, right off the top, uh, I want to make sure that people understand I might not be able to accomplish that. We're better than that. I don't know. We'll see. We'll, we'll, we'll find out because there's a lot of news to get to first. So I'll do the news of the last week and then uh, get back into the Ask John Anything questions. We start with what's going on with the corruption in the Trump administration, or at least uh, alleged uh, corruption in the Trump administration. Over the weekend, the now former U.S. attorney of the Southern District of New York, uh, Jeffrey Berman, First was, I guess he resigned or was told he was resigning, and then he 
said he wasn't. Then he was fired by Donald Trump. And then he wasn't. And then he resigned. Uh, it's all incredibly bizarre and confusing. And in any other administration is all that we would be talking about. But it's already old news now because this is the Trump administration. Correct. And this kind of thing has now become somehow normal. Correct. Uh, the bottom line is he's no longer in the job. Now, the reason why this is relevant is, one, it's highly unusual. And two, this is a guy whose office has been investigating both Trump as well as Trump cronies, including Rudy Giuliani. It's unclear as to what the uh, the state or the future of those investigations now is. Democrats are saying that they will investigate uh, this uh, thoroughly. Uh, who knows what the truth is, but it certainly stinks to high heaven. And given Trump's history, we can only assume the worst. Uh, there is actual testimony going on today from Aaron Zelinsky, an assistant U.S. attorney, testifying that Roger Stone prosecutors got pressure from the Trump DOJ from the highest echelons of the Trump DOJ, and not sure if that's Bill Barr in particular, but clearly at least someone close to him, to cut Roger Stone a break during his prosecution. And the same thing may have happened with Michael Flynn. Uh, interestingly, a, a federal appeals court today ruled that Michael Flynn's convictions have now been thrown out. Now, uh, the Trump fans are saying that this is somehow an exoneration, uh, and I keep asking two very, very simple questions. Uh, why did Michael Flynn plead guilty not once but twice? And why did Donald Trump fire him? These are very simple questions. Now, I've been told, oh, well, John, uh, Flynn was under pressure because he thought his son was going to be prosecuted, and that's why he pled guilty. I, I, I find that hard to believe. If you're innocent and you have the president of the United States as a close ally and you have resources— uh, to me, it's hard to understand why you would uh, plead guilty to something that you did not do, not once but twice. Uh, but to me, that still does not also answer the question, why did Donald Trump fire him? Was Donald Trump duped? I just wish the Trump fans would pick a lane. Was Donald Trump duped by the deep state into firing Michael Flynn? I mean, he, did not, he didn't just fire him. He, he uh, eventually justified the firing on Twitter said he had to do it because Flynn had lied about what had happened. And so I really don't get this idea of an exoneration. It's a revisionist history. It's illogical. It's classic uh, for Trump fans. I love the poorly educated. But this is where we are on this. So Mike Flynn is going to walk now after all this. Now, I don't know whether or not my, what Mike Flynn did deserved uh, to go to prison uh, I mean, he lied to the FBI. It certainly appears that way. He pled guilty to that twice. Uh, I mean, this, this is a very highly sensitive situation. Who knows how much of this was his own incompetence at the time uh, during the Trump transition. I'm not saying it was the worst thing anyone's ever done. But the idea that he's been exonerated is just just flat out, you know, what it is. It's just flat out ridiculous. Not what happened. He was not exonerated, uh, no matter what the, the Trump fans and the right wing state run media might tell you. Now, certainly within this realm, this is all happening uh, within the confines of a news cycle that still includes, although barely, we'll be done with this probably by tomorrow, uh, if not sooner, the John Bolton book. Uh, John Bolton, the former national security advisor uh, of the United States under Donald Trump, came out with a book. He, of course, uh, he was either fired or resigned, depending on who you believe. He became a, a big part of the, uh, well, the surroundings, 
not the actual, but the surroundings of the impeachment trial uh, of Donald Trump because uh, he was somebody who said that he was willing to testify if subpoenaed. But, of course, a, a subpoena would take forever, especially in this particular environment. And who knows how that would turn out. The White House would have fought it. It would have delayed impeachment forever. But Bolton has kind of come up with all sorts of different excuses for why he did not testify and why instead he decided to not even do any interviews but save his juicy stories for a book, which, of course, is a financial endeavor and something that provides a massive conflict of interest, not to mention uh, the, the horse has already left the barn. I mean, here we had the president of the United States being impeached on trial in the Senate for uh, the, the situation that occurred with regard to Ukraine and the quid pro quo. And here John Bolton was there. I mean, his book is called uh, you know, In the Room or whatever the hell it is called, something along those lines. He was there. He was there. And he had direct testimony to provide that he is acknowledged would be damaging to the president, not just on the Ukrainian situation, but on several other matters that he now says should have been involved in impeachment. By the way, I agree with that. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. I fully agree that the impeachment should have been far wider than just the Ukrainian matter. I said that constantly. I said it was a critical mistake not to go wider. I would not have agreed with the delay. You cannot delay. But that was up to Bolton. Bolton had all sorts of options. If anything, he could have just done an interview. If he really cared about the truth, if he really cared about an unfit man uh, who was putting American national security in jeopardy, which is what he's saying in the book, if he really cared that much about that, he could have done something at the time. Now, he's probably right. It wouldn't have made a difference to the final outcome. But that doesn't matter. That does not matter. That's not the way a conscience is supposed to work. He has said his conscience is clear because he knows what the result would have been. That's not how this works. If everybody thought that way, then no battles would ever be won. If everyone thought, well, my little part isn't going to do the the difference. I'm not going to make the difference in what the outcome is. So I'm just going to sit this one out. Guess what? (laughs) The the, The right side, truth, would never win. By the way, that's partially why the truth hardly ever wins anymore in anything. Because everyone takes John Bolton's view and they wimp out and they do what's in their own self-interest. And that's what John Bolton has done. Now, as far as what's specifically in the book, there are some interesting things. But in watching his interview, specifically on ABC over the weekend, I felt like we were in a time warp. I feel like John Bolton doesn't understand that the world just changed in the last three months. That we're in the middle of this pandemic, uh, you know, the left has gone absolutely bananas, that there are social cultural issues that have exploded, specifically in the issue, the issues of race. And that you know, while, um, you know, North Korea is an important issue and Trump being played by Putin is an important issue, it's nowhere near the top of people's minds anymore. So it's a bit of a time warp situation. I mean, what Bolton says in his interviews in the book is a damning indictment of the president of the United States. Correct. It's scary. It is absolutely frightening that we have, as I have described him many times, a child in the White House. We have a child. Correct. That's the way Bolton describes him in the way that he interacts, his knowledge of events, his unwillingness to read, his unwillingness to learn, his short attention span. Apparently he has a short attention span on everything except re-election. Re-election is the one thing he is hyper-focused on and has an infinite infinite attention span for, which doesn't surprise me. You know why? Because that's his self-interest. If it's in his self-interest, he is inherently interested. That's the way Trump 
works. I have a three-year-old daughter that's very similar. I, I have an eight-year-old daughter that's maybe even some more, somewhat more mature in some ways than the president of the United States. So th- I'm not saying that what Bolton's saying is not relevant. It is scary as hell. Uh, he indicates and, and corroborates a story that Trump didn't know whether or not Finland was part of Russia. Finland is part of Russia? You cannot be serious! But that's the president of the United States. And as I said many times on this podcast and elsewhere, it was obvious that Trump was being played by Putin and was being played by Kim Jong-un in North Korea to catastrophic degrees, to degrees where his own narcissism, his own uh, obsession with his self-interest, his own obsession with how much media coverage he's getting was placed way, way, way ahead of the self-interest of the United States and our national security, and by the way, the national security of the entire world. That alone ought to disqualify Donald Trump from, forget about uh, re-election, it should have disqualified him from being president. Gee, if only we had had an impeachment trial where John Bolton could have testified to some of these things if he wasn't worried about saving all this for a book. But unfortunately, this is where we are in this country today. We're better than that. We are not. This is who we are. Even our, you know, I consider John Bolton to be one of the good guys. I agree with him on many things. I've mentioned before that uh, I've complimented him to his face at a, at a public event where I asked him a question and indicated that he was the last guy in the Trump administration that had any balls. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. Uh, he seemed to enjoy that uh, conversation. Uh, I, I've kind of liked John Bolton over the years. I think he's a little bit extreme in some ways, but he's he's definitely one of the better guys. Uh, at least on the conservative side in in the Washington realm. And he even wimps out. Even John Bolton wimps out at the end uh, and decides, you know what, I'm going to hold this for a book. And I still predict, I don't know what it's done uh, in the last few days now that it's come out, but I'm still going to predict that the book will do not particularly well from a commercial standpoint because he's appealing to no cult. The media loves it. It's a good story. It's a good interview. Uh, but it's not going to have lasting impact because he doesn't appeal to any cult. The left-wing cult hates him because of what happened with impeachment, and they hate him because of his views, and the right-wing cult now believes he's a non-person, even though Donald Trump hired him to be the national security advisor uh, not that long ago. But now we're living in a world where whatever Trump says is the truth, regardless of what the past has uh, told us. It's kind of like 1984's book uh, from George Orwell. You know, (laughs) the past is irrelevant. It's whatever the authorities say is the truth today, and the truth today in the right-wing state-run media is that John Bolton is a traitor because that's what Donald Trump uh, says that he is. Now, as far as the right-wing Donald Trump cult, uh, we had the first test of the Trump cult in the post-pandemic era uh, over the weekend when Trump held his highly anticipated rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Now, uh, I have to say that I did not pay nearly enough attention to what was going on with regard to the expectations game that the Trump people fell into here. The idea that somehow uh, almost a million people had reserved a ticket for this 19,000-seat arena, an indoor arena in Tulsa, Oklahoma. By the way, I, I always thought it was stupid to be doing your first event in the middle of a pandemic uh, that is inside. I mean, why would you do it inside? I mean, everybody knows that outside is at least perceived to be a lot safer. Uh, Inside is not. Outside gives you better opportunity for social distancing, Uh, what have you. It just seemed like a bad idea from the beginning if that's going to be your first one. I mean, you want the first one 
to go well so that you can continue to do others similar to that in the future. And there was all this expectation. Oh, my gosh, people are going to jam-pack this arena. There's even going to be an overflow event. And what ends up happening? Nobody shows up. I mean, almost nobody shows up. There is no overflow crowd. They have to can't embarrassingly. They have to cancel that, uh, take down the scaffolding for what was planned for a second outside event, uh, and inside uh, the, the the fire authorities said only 6,200 people were in the arena. I, now I have to say because I'm I'm trying to be as objective as possible. It looked to me like there was more than 6,200 people there, but who knows? I was not in the building. It was clear that the upper uh, at level of this indoor arena was essentially empty. Uh, so at best, it was half full. Uh, so somewhere in the ballpark of less than 10,000 people showed up. Now, Joe Biden would never be able to get 10,000 people to show up for, an arena, for for any sort of an event, even, by the way, unless it was his convention, even if we didn't have a pandemic. So the Trump people are really kind of being hurt here by their own stupidity and and creation of expectations. They got ahead of themselves. They got full of themselves. They got to believing that their cult will do anything they ask them to. And and so now they've been hoisted on that petard because you live by expectations, you die by expectations. And this was a disaster from a perception standpoint. A disaster. It looked terrible because of what was expected. The event itself, I mean, Trump entertained. He was basically doing a stand-up act. I mean, that's that's effectively what the president of the United States has become. He's become a stand-up comedian. Correct. And, you know, there were some funny moments, I guess, if that's what you're in for. Uh, but as if we're not in the middle of a crisis in this country, as, as if, uh, you know, we, our whole way of life is not being changed before our eyes— and, if, and as if, if uh, he's not losing uh, in almost every election poll, including in the key states, I mean, this is a critical time period, and he's acting as if he's a stand-up comedian. So I'm sure the people that were there enjoyed themselves, uh, but on television it looked to me as if it was awfully tone-deaf. But more importantly than that, perception is everything in life. Perception is everything in life. And the perception of this was that it was an absolute total disaster. Correct. And there was even a walk of shame. I mean, it looked like the walk of shame. When Trump came back to Washington in the dark of night, he comes off the helicopter totally alone with his tie off. Uh, I mean, he looked like he was coming home, you know, after a, a, a bad hookup in the morning. Uh, I mean, that's what it looked like. And it was rightfully referred to on social media as the walk of shame. Uh, so from a perception standpoint, this thing was an absolute disaster for the Trump campaign. This is one of the few times where I think the media gets it right with regard to a narrative. Narratives do matter, especially when they stick. And when they stick it is at a critical time, and I've written about this already, that Trump is in deep, deep trouble when it comes to his reelection, that the stench of death starts to pervade your campaign right when it's beginning when that perception becomes reality and vice versa you're in big big trouble uh, because your ability to turn that around especially in this incredibly divisive era is very limited very limited when this many people already hate you don't just disagree with you don't just disapprove of the job you're doing they hate your fucking guts it is exceedingly difficult to turn that around, especially when the news media is against you and there's no sign right now that the pandemic is going to fade away into nothingness. 
Uh, in fact, uh, many people are worried about the opposite, which I'll get to in a second. But the reality here is this could not have gone worse uh, for the Trump people, and it's partially their own fault. Uh, they, they should not have had expectations this high. Uh, they should have done it in a more limited basis. They should have reduced expectations, but they didn't. You know why? Because they wanted to appeal to Donald Trump's ego. Correct. That's what this is all about. This is why uh, Trump gets himself into so much trouble, because the, uh, the goals are perverse. The incentives are perverse. It's very much like a mad king where they are doing things to please the mad king rather than doing things that might actually be good for the country. Forget about that. Uh, but even for his reelection efforts, which I think are in increasingly dire straits. Now, as far part of the reason why I think that his reelection efforts are in dire straits is because of what's going on with the virus. Again, we get into an issue of perception versus reality. There is no question that the perception right now is that we are headed for a so-called second wave of the virus in much of the country. There's absolutely no question there's been an, an increase in cases here in California, uh, in Arizona, in Texas, and in Florida specifically. Those four states, there's a couple of others that are also so-called hotspots, but it is for those four states that are uh, getting the most attention, and understandably so, because they have absolutely increased in the number of cases recently. Now, all four of those states are slightly different stories. I would say that uh, my concern level is, number one, Arizona, number two, close behind is Texas. Uh, those are concerning because of their hospitalization numbers. If their hospitalization numbers don't start to level out very soon, uh, I will be exceedingly concerned about what's going on there. But they are not yet in an emergency situation. Here in California, the story is slightly different. We are having more cases per day than we've ever had before. But we've had no real increase statewide in hospitalizations. A very, very slight increase. And there are potential explanations for a slight increase in hospitalizations. By the way, one of those is no one wants to talk about is that we had massive protests and riots, especially uh, uh, throughout California and in Los Angeles, uh, which is by far the worst area with regard to the virus in the state of California. But no one in the media wants to talk about that. But uh, there are other explanations for why our hospitalizations might be going up that are mostly statistical uh, and have to do with everyone getting tested now before they go to the hospital for anything, uh, and maybe even hypochondria uh, among younger people uh, who now feel like they have to go to the hospital regardless of how severe this coronavirus case they have really is because they've been scared out of their minds after three months of media coverage. That's speculation on my part, but when you're talking about incredibly small numbers of increase, I think that that is at least plausible, if not more than that. So our hospitalizations have not, uh, quote-unquote, spiked. Our deaths have not spiked. And in theory, an increase in cases is actually a good thing. No one wants to talk about that. Uh, but it's actually in theory, if people are getting this at a younger age and they're healthier and they're able to, to rebound quickly, this is actually a good thing for the, for the society as a whole. It makes it more difficult for the virus to spread in the future. So California, I'm not all that concerned about with regard to reality. However, I'm very concerned with regard to perception. I went to the Board of Supervisors meeting of my local county uh, yesterday, and I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified. 
If you go to my uh, Twitter page, which is Zygmunt Freud, uh, you can see the audio or hear the audio of my two-minute speech, uh, which was basically on fire, uh, to the Board of Supervisors. Uh, And after sitting there for two and a half hours, uh, I I now believe that our county, uh, even though we're doing exceedingly well with regard to the reality, I think we are screwed because I think our leaders have no idea what they're doing. I think they are itching to pull the trigger on another lockdown, uh, and they are looking at the statistics all wrong. They are panicking about statistics that are not indicative of any semblance of a real emergency or anything close to an emergency. And it's really uh, proof positive of what we've talked about previously, is that when this all began, this was supposed to be about flattening the curve, getting hospitals and society ready for the coming surge of cases. And now that's all changed. Flatten the curve turned into eliminate all cases of coronavirus. And that's just not possible. It's just not possible, especially in a free society. No one uh, had any doubt that the case numbers would increase as we started to open up. Uh, Frankly, I think we're doing better than most of the so-called experts expected or predicted or projected at this point. And so I'm very concerned that the perception is going to allow the fascists here in California to have their way. And we're going to go into a negative direction if things don't stabilize statistically in the next couple of weeks, which is going to be difficult because our numbers were so low to begin with. Now they can always claim this rate of increase bullshit uh, that has been the basis of so much uh, unnecessary panic. As far as Florida is concerned, I'm more confused about Florida than I am about the other situations. I've seen some data that indicate to me that it's similar to California and that there's really not an emergency situation. Uh, certainly deaths have not increased there uh, dramatically over the last couple of weeks, uh, but there may or may not be an increase in hospitalizations. It's harder to tell in Florida because of the way they do the data. So I'm not sure about Florida, uh, but those four states are clearly the most uh, concerning as of right now. Now, what's really bizarre is that yesterday, Dr. Fauci, who's wrong about almost everything, uh, he uh, testified that he believes that uh, a vaccine is very likely by the end of the year or beginning of next year, which, you know, in theory is fantastic news. I mean, can you imagine if Dr. Fauci, Mr. Doom and Gloom, uh, a month or two ago had told us, yep, I think we're going to have a vaccine by the end of the year, this year or early next year. And I'm pretty confident about that. I'm paraphrasing. That's essentially what he said. If he had said that a month or two ago, the stock market would be up 3,000 points today. (laughs) Everyone would be cheering. There would be parades in the streets. Instead, as I'm speaking to you, the stock market is down 750 points because of fears of a second wave of the coronavirus. And hardly anyone's talking about it. Now, I don't know whether that's because Fauci has lost all credibility. I I joked on Twitter that, oh, crap, this means we're never going to get a vaccine. Because using my, uh, you know, Fauci is almost always wrong decoder ring, this tells me this ain't going to happen. If Fauci is saying it, it's not going to happen. But he is saying it uh, under oath in public. Uh, So um, if he has any credibility left, I guess we should take it seriously. Uh, So, um, you know, I am am worried about where we're going more on the perception than on the reality side with regard to the virus. Um, but, um, I'm also, you know, I'm, I'm a realist here. I, I think that we have chosen probably the worst path possible with regard to the virus from the beginning to the end. And almost everything we have done has been wrong. And Trump deserves a lot of blame for that. A lot of the governors deserve blame for that. 
uh, we, the, the response to this has been nonsensical. At times it has been overbearing. But we didn't, we didn't go all the way on this. I mean, we didn't pick a lane. Uh, you know, Germany has done spectacularly well. They picked a lane. They shut down completely. Uh, and now it's almost com- eradicated. Germany has almost no cases on a daily basis. Our cases and our deaths can, uh, you know, continue to reflect very closely to what Sweden has done. Now, Sweden's most recent data is incomprehensible because they took a three-day weekend off and they stopped reporting for three days. But there's been no massive recent spike in Sweden. Uh, and our deaths here in America, just as I have predicted, have continually gone down for essentially 21 straight days. The seven-day average for daily deaths in America has gone down. The media will never tell you that. But that's the reality. Now, I have predicted that that number is going to turn around, that that streak will probably break. It technically broke yesterday by by one death. Uh, but we'll see over the next couple of days where that goes. I, I still am not convinced it's going to go dramatically back up. And it can't, partially for statistical reasons. I mean, when, when you have 1,400 people dying a day in nursing homes and anyone who has coronavirus is considered a coronavirus death, it's really hard to get the numbers below 600 or so, which is where we are currently in a seven-day average. So the number is never going to go way below that. It just it statistically can't, especially when more and more people are getting the virus uh, just through the normal course of, of, of the, the natural uh, evolution of this thing. So that's where we are uh, on the virus situation. As far as Joe Biden is concerned, the major development over the last week was that uh, Amy Klobuchar, who I had at one point said was the Democrats' best uh, hope to, to beat uh, Donald Trump back when I thought Joe Biden was crippled and couldn't get back up until Jim Clyburn saved his campaign, has taken herself out of the running for the vice presidential nomination, which was a smart move on her part because she was no longer in the running. If you're if you're not going to get the job, it makes you look a lot better to say, you know what, uh, I don't want the job because I think it's time for a woman of color. Uh, now, uh, you know, I, I, good for her for for making the right play uh, politically. It's going to make herself look really good uh, because if she wasn't the choice, uh, her star would have diminished, and she wasn't going to be the choice. I told you the moment that the whole thing happened in Minneapolis. Uh, with with the uh, the killing of the black man by the the police officer, George Floyd, the the black man who was in custody and ended up dying under circumstances we still don't fully understand, but we don't care about that anymore. We don't care about facts. We just rush to judgment on everything. But he's perceived as having been killed by the police officer. At the moment that happened, Amy Klobuchar, even though she had nothing to do with it, she was done. One because it was in her home state, and two because now uh, Joe Biden had to have a black person. And he's already said he's had to have a woman. And when Amy Klobuchar said, "Okay, it's time to have a woman of color, I thought, "Okay, that's nice. But isn't that affirmative action? I mean, isn't that affirmative action? Correct. That sounds like affirmative action to me. Someone correct me if I'm wrong. But when uh, you decide that the only person that's eligible for a job is a, a woman of color, that certainly sounds like affirmative action to me. And by the way, anyone who believes that Amy Klobuchar said that, without telling the Biden people she was going to say that, uh, you're delusional. Of course, she she told them, and I'm sure that they signed off on it and because otherwise they would be complete and total morons because now the expectation is that this has to be a woman of color. Well, it's going to be a woman of color. I've been telling you that for a couple of weeks. 
Kamala Harris is probably the on paper favorite. I don't. I think she brings too many problems to the table. Uh, but there are a couple of other options. It's going to be a woman of color, which is fine. And I, and I hope it's a good uh, choice. But it sure sounds like affirmative action to me, which used to be, uh, you know, a negative in this country. But I guess now we we believe in in uh, equal uh, outcomes, no longer equal opportunity. And I guess Martin Luther King's dream is officially dead. Speaking of race. I want to mention very quickly a story that I've now become somewhat associated with, having written a column about it that's actually been picked up in quite a few places, including the New York Post and apparently on Fox News Channel, this Bubba Wallace NASCAR situation. For those of you who don't know, don't know what this is, NASCAR is stock car racing. It's had a long history of, of uh, being a white man's sport in the South and therefore somehow associated with racism. Uh, they just banned the Confederate flag. And over the weekend uh, before race in Alabama, uh, there was a massive story uh, that Bubba Wallace, uh, uh, at least someone associated with him, had found a noose in his garage. And long story short, I immediately said, wait a minute, hold on, this is bullshit. There, there's, there's no way this could happen under these circumstances, especially under COVID restrictions. Someone would be this stupid as to put a noose in a garage of a major NASCAR driver who happens to be black uh, under, in, in this incredibly highly charged racial atmosphere, especially after the Confederate flag ruling uh, and doing so in Alabama. I mean, this would be the easiest crime to solve ever. And whoever did it would have their lives destroyed, their careers ended. This made absolutely no sense, especially when there was no proof. Like, I mean, we've now gotten to the point where the media won't even ask the most simple question. Like, um, where's the photo? Where's the photo? This happened? Okay, let me see a photo. I mean, my God, everybody in the world has a camera with them at all times. Where's the goddamn photo? Well, when there was no photo, I immediately thought, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute, hold on. This, this sounds like we're going to get a misunderstanding here. No one wants to release the photo because the photo is going to look to most people like a goddamn rope with a knot at the end of it. I mean, and, and by the way, that's what a noose is. A noose is a specific type of knot. Now, it's had a negative, obviously, racial connotation because of the hangings of black men. I get that. But there's, there's a technical definition of a noose, which is, which is a knot. Well, sure enough, photographic evidence came forward very quickly that, uh, that basically every garage at this track had what you might call a noose attached to the garage door to help pull it down. And when I saw that, I'm like, okay, this is just not true. Now, why does this have to do with Trump? Uh, and, and by the way, the FBI investigated it, found out, guess what? There was no hate crime. And uh, and the left is still not fully accepting this. The media is still not fully accepting this. Bubba Wallace is still not fully accepting this because they've become emotionally invested in this fairy tale narrative that somehow the whole world is racist and that people go around uh, putting nooses in others uh, in a black man's garage, even though their their lives are going to get destroyed if they easily get found out about this. Here's why it's relevant. I made the analogy last week or the comparison last week that that when Mike Gundy is getting destroyed for wearing a T-shirt for the One American News Network in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma, that that's a problem for Trump. That that shows just how incredibly toxic he and anything having to do with alleged conservatism is. Similarly, when all of NASCAR is embracing in Alabama the idea that 
somehow a rope with a noose knot is a hate crime against a black driver. And there's no pushback. I mean, there's no pushback. I mean, NASCAR really literally held a parade for Bubba Wallace. They literally held a parade for Bubba Wallace before it was found out this wasn't actually a hate crime. When there's that much capitulation in Alabama within NASCAR, this is Trump country. This is this is an organization associated with the base of what Donald Trump's supporters should be. When there's that much capitulation, I'm sorry, that is an ominous, ominous sign for Donald Trump. Ominous. And it's an indication to me that what I talked about previously a couple weeks ago, where he's lost his political superpower. His political superpower has always been in white angst, in white people being terrified of what is happening to the country if they don't stand back, stand up and fight. Well, there's been no fight back against any of this. All the statues being torn down, no matter how nonsensical they are, some of which make sense, many of which make absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, alleged hate crimes. I mean, there's all sorts of fake or misconstrued hate crimes going on all over the country, including several involving nooses. I mean, the the noose percentage is is got to be you know worse than a uh, you know a little league batting average. I mean, I mean, it is it, it almost never a, a story involving a, no, a noose is almost never as perceived, and that's what happened with with uh, Bubba Wallace. But I'm seeing absolutely no pushback among Trump's base of support, which has to be uh, white people who are concerned, white people who are afraid, white people who are afraid about the police being defunded or disbanded or just plain old neutered, white people who are afraid of, of what they see with with uh, regard to riots and protests and, uh, you know, affirmative action or or e- even worse. I mean, reparations now being widely talked about for, for slavery, for for something that no one living had anything to do with. I mean, that's that is the only way that Trump has a path to a reelection. And there's no indication that the anti left uh, you know, uh, cavalry, if you will, is coming to save Donald Trump. There's none. In fact, the statistics are showing more and more every day. The polls are showing more and more every day. Exactly the opposite. There's a New York Times poll out today. Now, I know it's the New York Times, and you're not supposed to trust anything from the New York Times if you're a conservative. Um, but uh, the New York Times poll today has Biden at 50 percent, Trump at 36 percent. 36 percent. Wow. You cannot be serious. That is a death knell. That is as close at this point, given the unique nature of this race, that is as close to turn out the lights as you can get in uh, late June. That's as close as you can get. The average, now granted, this is not the Electoral College, this is the Popular vote. We do not determine a president based upon popular vote. And there's been now a massive disconnect between popular vote and electoral college, as we saw in 2016. But it is now over 10 points for the first time since forever. Joe Biden is leading Donald Trump by an average of over 10 points in the most recent average, real clear politics average of all polls. 10.1 points. Trump's approval rating is now at negative 13. 
with only 42.8%, the average of his approval. And that's with Rasmussen, his favorite poll, actually rebounding for him. Rasmussen's approval, which is still negative, is the only tiny little beat I have seen for Donald Trump in the statistical data over the last week or two. Uh, 42.8% approval does not get you to ride the ride, as I have said many times, to use an amusement park analogy back when we used to have amusement parks in America. Uh, 42.8% does not get Trump on the ride. Uh, and and but even more ominous is his negative rating with regard to approval is 55.6 on average. If Donald Trump has really lost 55% of the country, it's over. It is absolutely over for him. Correct. Now, are there scenarios that that could turn around? Uh, I guess theoretically, but it's becoming more and more difficult to see exactly what they are. All right. So with that said, uh, I'm trying to leave as much time as possible for these Ask John Anything questions part two. So let's get right to them and get through as many as I possibly can. Uh, AGO asks, if Trump loses this fall, how will the conservative media react? Do they spend the next four years blaming never-Trump Republicans, or do they suddenly start pretending, revealing that they were never big fans of Trump in the first place? This is an excellent question, uh, one that I hate to say uh, it depends, uh, but it does. It depends on the outcome. The outcome matters, not just that he loses, but by how much. Uh, you know, there is still a scenario here, I think, where Trump could get crushed uh, because it's one of the things about Trump that's interesting is Trump's great appeal is that he appeal, appears to be a strong character, right? He, he, he exudes or at least tries to exude strength. Well, when you are losing and you are losing badly and when the stench of death that I referred to earlier pervades your campaign. And by the way, guess what happens then? Now a domino effect occurs because now people around him stop listening to his edicts. He effectively stops becoming president. Effectively, his power stops because now no one has an incentive to take a bullet for him, to do something illegal for him, to do something questionable for him. So there is a scenario, and I'm not predicting this right now. It's too early to do that. There's a scenario where this whole thing really goes downhill for Trump, more so than it might for another candidate, because once he starts to look weak and starts to look like he's a loser, then he might even lose some of his base uh, because that's what appeals to them. And frankly, I think he's been incredibly weak over these last three months. I have said, and I'm sure I've pissed off many listeners to this podcast, that if he had shown some balls over the last three months, I might have even thought about supporting him. But he's done nothing. He's come up completely limp, completely ballless. Uh, I'm not going to get into that. I, I mean, that's who Trump has become. And and I, I see no sign of that changing. He's had all, incredible opportunities to be the fighter that his base likes to pretend that he is. And has, that has not happened. And so uh, if it's a complete disaster, you're going to start to see the rats uh, jump off the ship. If he's able to hold it together, and now that's still, I think, the most likely scenario. I think he will hold it together and we're going to see a relatively close uh, but definitive win for Biden based upon the current circumstances. Under that scenario, that's going to be really difficult. I think you're going to see a split. I think you're going to see, you know, some people are still going to stay on the ship uh, and some people are going to jump off of it. Uh, you know, like I can see a Tucker Carlson jumping off of the ship, but Sean Hannity ain't going to jump off that ship. He's going down with the ship. 
so a lot of it depends on how bad the loss really is. And Clarence asks a similar question. Will Republicans quickly turn on Trumpism if he loses? This is going to be actually more difficult than the media, because anybody who has uh, hopes for a, uh, a future in the Republican Party cannot, at least in the short run, and assuming Trump doesn't get completely demolished, they cannot become a Trump enemy. Because I still believe with Trump's Twitter feed, as insane as it sounds, that for at least a couple of years after his presidency, assuming he does not get crushed, he's going to be able to impact a Republican primary with his Twitter feed. Not all Republican primaries, but a lot. And part of the reason why is he's going to still be eligible to run for president again. That's why the margin here is going to be so incredibly important. Incredibly important. Trump losing by a small margin might actually be the worst possible scenario going forward, uh, especially if you're a Republican, because then he's still viable for 2024. He's got his Twitter feed. He's got the right wing media. He's got his cult. He ain't going anywhere as long as his health holds up. And frankly, I, despite the what the left would like to believe, I think he's actually in pretty decent shape, not physically, but I mean, I, I don't see him going downhill uh, in that regard real soon. Obviously, that can change quickly. But all things being equal, that's going to be a massive problem. So you got to root for Trump if you don't want him to win. I'm assuming most listeners don't. you got to root for him to be destroyed. He's, this has to be an absolute massacre. Otherwise, this problem is not going away. And partially because the media won't want it to. The media is going to need some content, uh, especially once this pandemic, if it ever finally ends. And Joe Biden is president. That's going to be a snooze fest. So they're going to need to give oxygen to Donald Trump. Scott asks, uh, why do you still have an AOL email address? Um, that You know, what's funny about that is there must be something about conservatives and AOL email addresses because Almost all of the major, and I'm, I'm not in this category, but almost all of the major conservative commentators that I've dealt with all still have, at least as in recent memory, have AOL email addresses. Uh, Ann Coulter, Mark Levin, uh, Sean Hannity, um, a couple other people that maybe not, aren't quite as well known. I don't know what it must, must be about the time period in which conservatives started doing email, <laughs> but I keep an AOL email address because I have incredibly important uh, emails that I, I want to be able to hold on to, including the attachments that go with them. And I don't trust transferring them into uh, some other email account. And so basically I'm, pay I'm paying a hostage every month. I pay hostage money for these uh, emails that I have uh, for uh, other stories that I work on that I need as a resource. So there is some logic to it, even though I realize it looks ridiculous. Uh, Anonymous asks, there are a myriad of reasons to dislike Trump, uh, but what are your top three? Well, it is difficult to pick three, uh, but I will say, number one, he's a liar. That, that's always been my biggest problem with Trump. He doesn't tell the truth. Correct. Uh, he's also incredibly selfish and narcissistic, which I hate, especially in a president. Correct. Uh, but uh, right now, I think the reason I hate him the most is he is driving America towards socialism and maybe even fascism far more quickly and far more dramatically than anyone on the left ever possibly could have done. Correct. And I predicted this, and it's happening way worse than I ever thought.
way worse than I ever thought. And that's why I will hate the man uh, probably for the rest of my life, because we're going to be doing a lot of suffering for a very long time, paying the price for having made Donald Trump president of the United States. Uh, another anonymous question asks, so who would be your favorite person to interview, whether alive or dead? You know, for this podcast, obviously, it would be Donald Trump, since this is the individual one podcast. Uh, I mean, if uh, if I had my choice, living or dead, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, other possibilities. But as far as uh, this podcast, it would obviously have to be Trump. Uh, Luke uh, asks, is there anything either Trump or Biden could do to push you towards or away voting for them? Or are you solidly against voting for either? Uh, at this point, it would be almost impossible. Uh, it, you know, Trump had his last opportunity for me to uh, pull the lever for him, although I was never going to do that. Uh, but even maybe theoretically publicly support him, not that my support means anything, but it's just theoretical. Uh, over the last three months, he completely blew it. Uh, you know, he, that was the last chance, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Biden, I was more than willing, and I did support during the primaries, especially at the beginning, beginning of this podcast. I was touting Biden as the guy to beat Trump, and I think I was right in that. Uh, but you know, to me, it now depends on who his vice presidential nominee is. I mean, if it's Kamala Harris, I'm sorry, I, I can't vote for that because that, I'm essentially voting for Kamala Harris to be the 2024 Democratic presidential nominee. Because that's what's going to happen. Biden ain't going to run for two terms. I mean, he's going to be lucky to get through one term. So if Kamala Harris is the vice presidential nominee and she wins, she's like 85 percent towards the presidency in 2024. And that's uh, I can't do I can't be a part of that. Um, you know, I have some hope for Val Demings, the Democratic uh, congresswoman from Florida, who's a black woman. Uh, I don't know whether or not, uh, you know, she's a presidential timber or not, but I would I would feel more comfortable with her than Kamala Harris. Uh, so I would have to make that decision uh, when it comes to it. But as of this point, I have no intention to vote for either uh, Trump or Biden, as if that matters. Uh, Henry asks, what are your predictions for Trump's lame duck months? Oh, my God. Uh, complete catastrophe. I mean, the first thing that's going to happen is Roger Stone's getting a pardon. That's for damn sure. I mean, every, anybody who's ever had a conversation with Donald Trump is going to get a pardon. Correct. If he's able to pull it off from a federal perspective. Uh, uh, I mean, so the pardons are he I mean, he's, and he's going to make what Obama did and Bill Clinton did in, the, in their last days in office pale by comparison. I mean, it is going to be an absolute joke. I, I wouldn't surprise me if, you know. Uh, there's an incredible effort on his part to try to sabotage future DOJ investigations of him and his cronies. I mean, it's going to be corruption on steroids. Uh, and who knows what's going to happen from a national security perspective? I mean, I, I think that's a potential crisis because here's a guy who is going to look for protection once he leaves office. This is a guy who's going to look for financial opportunities once he leaves office. I mean, you've got, you're going to have an ultimate opportunity over a couple of months period of time where someone who knows they're no longer going to be president of the United States, who theoretically still has that power and who's going to be using it for one reason and one reason only, their own personal aggrandizement and benefit. Correct. And that is awfully scary. So I, I don't think we've seen anything yet with regard to corruption until you've seen the lame duck months of a Trump presidency. Uh, another anonymous question asks, why do you never discuss abortion? Well, because it's not a relevant issue politically anymore. It's been set. It's set in the Supreme Court. It's set politically for all intents and purposes. Uh, and, you know, Trump uses it to 
uh, try to, to fool or dupe the conservative Christian base into voting for him, even though he's done almost nothing for them on that issue. And neither have the judges that he's appointed yet done anything for them on that issue. But if it's relevant, I have no problem discussing it. Uh, Mark asks, what's your greatest concern or fear about how President Joe Biden would handle the coronavirus outbreak? Well, uh, on the positive side, you know, there's been a lot of people who have joked, we know exactly when the pandemic is going to end, and it'll be November 4th, assuming Joe Biden wins. I think there's some truth to that. I do think that we're going to see a change uh, in the way the media uh, uh, portrays the pandemic uh, if and when Joe Biden wins in November. Uh, I'm hopeful that that's the case because I want what's best for the country. Uh, however, if we don't get a vaccine and we do get a massive second wave, I am very concerned uh, that uh, because of the people around Joe Biden are all uh, very much uh, pro lockdown uh, that we, you know, under the worst case scenario, I think he would be even worse than uh, than Trump when it comes to how we would handle such a situation, not necessarily because of his own beliefs, but because of the people around him who have shown themselves to be incredibly pro shutdown, lockdown and against freedoms. And I'm, I'm including in here all the uh, blue state governors uh, who support Joe Biden. So I am concerned about that, although I'm being delusionally optimistic and saying that maybe there's a positive side because now all of a sudden everybody uh, on the left will have an incentive to get the pandemic behind us so that they can get credit for restoring uh, normal uh, and productive life in America. That's my hope as to what will happen, but obviously uh, there's a lot to be decided on what will determine that. George asks, because you were a giant Sarah Palin fan, that's not actually accurate, I understand why people think that, but it's not accurate. Do you think her VP candidacy led to figures like Donald Trump? And in what ways would you say Trump and Palin are similar and different? Now, the, que- the question in itself is good. Um, for those who don't know, I did the, the only uh, extensive interview with Sarah Palin after the 2008 presidential election uh, from her home in Alaska. It made massive national news, way more news than I ever anticipated was even theoretically possible. And somehow I became, for about a year or so, her de facto media spokesperson. And during that time period, um, you know, she and I had a lot of problems. I uh, soon learned that she did not like people who disagreed with her. And uh, and this was a concern, not just because my advice was falling on deaf ears, but also because it's, that's not the way you want a leader to be. Um, I do think there are some similarities between the two of them. I believe that Sarah Palin is smarter than Donald Trump. I believe that she had much greater potential than Donald Trump. I believe that if she had listened to me, she could have been president in 2016, or at least been the Republican nominee in 2016. Uh, but she did not take my advice on how to proceed after that d- a disaster and media attack. And most of the media attacks on her were unfair in the 2008 election. But absolutely, uh, she paved the way uh, for Donald Trump. And I even may have played a small role in that. And I feel some guilt about that. I'll be very honest about it. I even think Trump understands this, which is why Trump, and this shows sometimes uh, Trump can be rather smart. He can be rather savvy when it comes to his own self-interest. He embraced Sarah Palin, and then he threw her under the bus. That That was politically a smart move on his part because he got 
her street cred with the people he appeals to the most, the base of the Republican Party. But then he also realized that she was one of the very few people that could theoretically threaten him with that base. And so he didn't hire her in the White House. Uh, you know, he, he basically demeaned her by giving her a visit with uh, Kid Rock and Ted Nugent, I think it was, in the White House. And they posed for these crazy pictures. I mean, it was actually a brilliant move from a royal palace perspective by King Trump. Because Sarah Palin at one point could have been a threat. And now she no longer is. And I don't know. I haven't been in touch with her for many years because uh, I I threw her under the bus in a very extensive uh, column I wrote for the Daily Caller called The Sarah Palin I Know, which you can search for yourself on Google and find out the real story of my relationship with Sarah Palin. But that's that's what's happened. Uh, Tom asks, uh, what is the best source of news and information for someone who wants to be educated in a nonpartisan i.e. learn both sides to the story, fashion. I wish I had a great answer for this. I get asked this question all the time. Uh, Obviously, uh, this podcast and my Twitter feed should be part of that uh, diet. Uh, There are, uh, unfortunately, very few other areas to go to. My general uh, advice on this is to go to as many sites as you possibly can, a number of sources as you possibly can, and use your common sense. Use your common sense and try to figure out what the incentive is, what the angle is of the news outlet telling you the story. That's the key to figuring out what's true and what's not. That's why I'm particularly good at being able to smell out bullshit stories like the Bubba Wallace news story. Because I'm very good at being able to figure out what the incentive structures are. So it's it's kind of a learned trait, but that's my advice. Uh, Clarence asks, who is your favorite choice for vice president as of right now for Joe Biden? Uh, for As of right now, I, I like what I've seen from Val Demings uh, since it's going to be a black woman. Uh, she's a black woman, and I liked what she did during the impeachment. I like her persona. I like her background. Uh, I would like to know more before I made a definitive statement, but I would much prefer her over Kamala Harris. Lawrence asks, do you use a script? Or do you ad-lib your entire show? (laughs) I have some experience in radio and know how hard it is to talk for long stretches. How do you do it? (laughs) This is actually a good question because literally I come in to do this podcast with one page of about uh, 12 lines of, I wouldn't even call them notes, but it's kind of reminders of where I want to go, just a structure of where I want to go. There is no script. And I do do this almost all ad lib and we almost never edit. I mean, if we if we have one edit during a podcast, that's a lot. I think today actually we've had two because I got a phone call in the middle of the uh, the start of the show. Uh, But we almost never have edits. uh, And uh, I like it that way. I like it being extemporaneous. I like it being natural. Uh, to me, it's more real that way, and hopefully uh, you, the listener, appreciate that. But, yeah, it's not its not easy. I'm exhausted by the end of these shows, I can assure you of that. Uh, Brendan asks, uh, hey, John, just discovered the Individual One podcast, uh, and it, I, it's your best yet. I guess that means it's my best, the best podcast that I've done yet of the many that I have done in the past. I used to do a podcast that's on hiatus now called The World According to Zig. Uh, We need you more than once a week. Any chance of that happening? Uh, This from a 16-year-old fan. So thank you, Brendan. Oh, no, it's not 16-year-old, but a fan of 16 years, Brendan. So I guess uh, this person has been listening to me 
uh, ever since I started in Los Angeles uh, about 16 years ago. Uh, well, we used to do twice a week with the Individual One podcast, and I used to do the World According to Zig podcast. Because of the pandemic and because I'm actually in the middle of producing a completely separate new podcast, a documentary podcast about uh, the entire so-called uh, Penn State, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky scandal that's taking in an awful lot of time and effort and an enormous amount of resources. Uh, that's why we're on the once-a-week schedule currently. That may or may not change as we get closer to the election. My guess is we're going to stay on once a week for the individual one podcast, depending on circumstances, uh, and hopefully we'll be able to maintain that at least through the election. After that, I can't make any guarantees, uh, but that's why it's just once a week right now. Uh, Chris asks, I have heard a lot of voices in the media say that this might be 1968 all over again, but they come at it from the perspective of, is Trump going to be like Nixon? My question is to you whether or not Trump is really more like Lyndon Baines Johnson. Uh, while he'll never resign like LBJ, although LBJ didn't resign, he didn't run for the nomination, he withdrew from the nomination, how would you compare the forces of turmoil, turmoil working against their presidencies continuing? I think it's an interesting uh, comparison. I do think that uh, Trump could be more like LBJ than Nixon, especially since uh, LBJ didn't uh, win. He didn't even technically uh, run. But I, I, I think that the political world is very different today than it was in 1968, partially because of the way the media is. So I don't like comparisons to, say, 1968. I mean, we are so more, so balkanized now. We are so fragmented. We're so divided. No one changes their mind about anything. I mean, just think, look at what happened with Nixon. Nixon won in 1968. He wins an overwhelming victory in 1972. And then two years later, he's forced to resign because his approval ratings are in the toilet. Now, that couldn't happen. We've seen that couldn't happen today with Donald Trump. Trump won a miracle victory in 2016 with a minority of votes, nothing close to what Nixon won by in 1972. He gets destroyed in the media for three years. He gets impeached. Nixon was never technically impeached. And his approval ratings never moved at all in any significant way. In fact, they actually went up a little bit. Because we're living in a different world now. And so I, I, I'm not sure I necessarily agree with the comparison, but I see where you're going with that. A couple other quick questions in the time we have remaining, and we've gone overboard, uh, but I'll do the best I can to finish up here. Mike, when do you see the media giving up on the shutdown? Uh, there still seems to be quite a few people emotionally invested, in, even when the riots are going on. Would they hold up, hold out until a vaccine? Or if Biden won in November, would they give it up? I do believe, as I've already said, that uh, that on November 4th, I'm hoping that if Biden wins, we're going to see a very different uh, view of uh, the pandemic and of the shutdown in the media. Uh, but maybe I'm being delusionally optimistic. Anonymous asks, if you were Biden and wanted to put a dagger in Trump's election chances, what would you be doing right now? Absolutely nothing. I but Joe Biden would not even go out of his, his basement. There, there's absolutely no reason for Joe Biden to be doing anything other than not picking Kamala Harris as his vice presidential nominee. Uh, but, but that may or may not be inevitable. But uh, I would be doing nothing, and I would be trying to find a, a vice presidential nominee that was the safest uh, possible that would also not piss off my base. Uh, Jim asks, similarly, what would you be doing if you were running the Trump campaign? Trump only has one uh, opportunity, based upon the current facts on the ground, to win this race. 
it has to be a race war. It has to be white people revolting against what they are seeing uh, in, in our culture, in our politics. Uh, and I'm not suggesting this is a good thing. I'm not suggesting that, uh, you know, that it, it wouldn't be outrageous. It wouldn't be incredibly uh, ugly. I'm just telling you the only path he has for victory is to rally white people. That's it. That's his shot. And the numbers are there. But I am now convinced more than ever, for reasons I've already stated, that, right, that there are not enough white people to be rallied to his cause for a number of reasons. I think the media has had an incredibly, uh, uh, done an incredibly effective job of co-opting and compromising white people into their cause. Again, for better or for worse. I, 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 I don't, you know, it, it's been kind of shocking to me to see that there's been no pushback at all from what we have seen in the insanity of the last, especially two months, uh, both with the shutdown and more specifically with regard to racial tensions. Uh, it, now, maybe there's a threshold beyond which uh, white people will finally go, whoa, whoa, wait, wait a minute, hold on a second. But it hasn't happened yet. And if it hasn't happened yet, I, I start to wonder, would that ever happen? It is quite possible that that, as I've referred to it previously, uh, Trump's political superpower is now gone that that weapon no longer is effective. And if that's the case, he's done because that's his only path. He must make this a, a campaign where white people see this as their last stand, their last stand before the country that they thought they were growing up in is gone forever. By the way, I think that might already be too late. But you're just asking me, how does Trump do it? That's the only path or at least the most the most uh, straightforward path I see uh, for a Trump victory. And I'm not sure it's possible at this point, regardless of how ugly it may actually be to go in that direction. Michael asks, if Biden wins, do you see Trump continuing to tweet? What impact will he have on a Biden presidency? That'll be interesting. Um, if Trump gets past uh, Biden's inaugural speech, that'll be an upset without tweeting. Uh, my guess is that you know he might try for... <laughs> couple hours or a couple days, maybe a couple of weeks to stay silent in respect to the the uh, you know the past traditions of, of past presidents not commenting on current presidents. But that ain't going to last. That is not going to last uh, how long anybody's bet. Uh, but there's no way that's going to last. And Trump will end up uh, tweeting on a daily basis. And I think it will have an impact on the Biden presidency. Might be good, by the way, for him. Uh, but uh, not good for Republicans and uh, Republicans' chances of winning the 2024 election. Sylvia asks, will there be a peaceful transition of power if Biden wins? How dangerous will Trump be? This goes to the margin. This is why it's so incredibly important that Trump uh, be defeated by a, a large margin so that there cannot be a legitimate uh, contesting of the election. If there is, I think all bets are off and we are headed for a potential super disaster. Uh, what that threshold is, I don't know. Trump is still capable of reaching that threshold of losing a close race. That is still very much on the table. And I do believe that, yes, Trump would be very, very dangerous under those uh, circumstances. And finally, Jim says, uh, have you gone soft on Trump? It certainly seems lately as you as if you have. Uh, certainly not today. I haven't. Uh, I can understand over the last couple of months that people might perceive it that way. It's mostly been because not my view of Trump changing, but my fear of the left. 
I am now terrified of what is going to happen with this country now that we are heading towards full-on socialism, if not fascism, because of a perfect storm of events, including the pandemic, the shutdown, the racial tensions, uh, and there being apparently no pushback at all uh, from independent voters against any of this. In fact, they seem to be embracing this. I see this as the worst possible scenario, and uh, you know I have no one to root for here. And uh, and so you know I've, I've used this analogy before. Trump is a cancer. He's probably a deadly cancer. I don't know how long it would take that cancer to kill the United States of America, but I wanted it removed. And now uh, hard leftists have come in and said, yep, we have the solution for this Trump cancer. It's going to be a, a sex change operation and a lobotomy. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa. That was not the deal. That was not the deal. You're supposed to get rid of the fucking cancer. I, 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 I do not want a sex change operation. I don't want a lobotomy. But that's where we're headed with this. And so that's why I hate both sides. And that's why I'm sure it appears as if I've been soft on Trump. But as if this, as if, if, if this podcast episode doesn't prove that that is not an indication of my true feelings, I don't know what possibly could. All right. We went way past our normal time, but hopefully you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for all the questions for Ask John. Anything, I'm sure we'll do this again in the future, assuming the podcast uh, survives long enough into the future for us to be able to do so. Updating uh, the uh, current chances of a Trump re-election. I'm going to be very, uh, very conservative as this number goes down, as it continues to go down. But I'm going to officially put the chances of Trump's re-election at 20%. It might actually be less than that, but I'm going to be conservative based upon what happened in 2016 as this number continues to go down. So officially, it's 20%. Again, Feel, please feel free uh, to um, use that for whatever purpose you want, but no wagering and keep your social distance. Until next week, uh, that'll do it for this edition of the Individual One Podcast. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, this is the Global Story Network. Network.